So we're going to begin looking at the most holy place today. We realize that as we went through the courtyard, represented what Christ has done for us, something we couldn't do for ourselves. He paid the price. That, and it became a perfect sacrifice that gave us an opportunity to have eternal life. But it's not just what he does for us, it's what we allow him to do in us. There's a work that has to be done in us to prepare us for heaven. And so we had gone through the holy place already, and now we want to talk about the most holy place, and this will be part four of this sermon. And um, I've got it on here. There we go. And I just want to preface it with this idea. That in the beginning, God created man in his own image and after his own likeness. That Adam and Eve stood in absolute perfection. There was an attaint of sin. There was no disease. Absolutely perfect. Perfectly happy. Perfect symmetrically. Every organ, everything was just absolutely healthy and perfect in its function. And, And Adam and Eve, because of this purity and because of this innocence... They can actually see God face to face. But should they fall, should they sin and have this fallen nature, they would not be able to see God face to face. And look at what Paul says here. But it's your iniquities that have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you. And he will not hear. So when God created Adam and Eve, they would talk with God in the cool of the day, face to face. But sin had separated us where we haven't seen God's face for 6,000 years as a human race. Is that right? And then here we find something happened in the garden. Therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam, he sent Adam forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he, he, so he drove out the man... And he placed at the east of the garden, the Garden of Eden, cherubim, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. The reason that God placed on which side? The east side. I want you to remember that. The east side. Not the west side. The east side. So God put a a cherubim with a flaming sword on the east side of their home. He drove Adam out from the Garden of Eden, put a, a cherubim on the east side so that man couldn't enter into the Garden of Eden because he then might partake of what? The tree of life and then perpetuate sin. But God wants to destroy sin. And his plan is to destroy sin, not just in the world, but within inside of us. That's how it happens, right? So, so when you're studying the Bible, one of the things you might ask is, Why did God specifically mention the east side? And and there may not be another part in the Bible that talks about it, but it's one of the ways you dig deeper into the Bible. And you say, is there another place in the Bible where God has a cherubim on the east side? And the answer is, is yes, that's the most holy place. You see, on the east side of the most holy place was cherubim embroidered on the veil going into... The most holy place. But think about this story, and we'll look at some verses here that show that. The first time we see a cherubim on the east side was to prevent man from getting into the garden because he was a he was a sinner. But if later on you have a story of a cherubim in a most holy place where we can enter by faith, that means these cherubim, they're not preventing us from getting into a garden. They're welcoming us 
to see God's face. And we couldn't see God face to face unless there's a solution to the sin problem. That's what we're taught about a cherubim being on the east side. But when you got a cherubim on the east side in the most holy place, that's telling us that God found a solution where we could see him face to face. Does that make sense? And this is how he did it. This is the solution. He said, let them make me a sanctuary that I might what? That means you're, if we follow the sanctuary and all that it teaches, we're going to see God face to face. We'll dwell with him. So that means the courtyard, the holy place, the most holy place is teaching us how to dwell with God again and see him face to face and have that face to face communication. Um, and then we find at the end of the book of Revelation, and they, speaking of the saints, shall see, shall see God's face. And his name shall be in their foreheads. So we know that after sin, they couldn't see God's face. God builds a sanctuary to teach them how to see his face again. And we see that there must have been a people who followed Jesus through the sanctuary. And they will see God's face again. That's a pretty simple little study, isn't it? So what I want to do is talk about, here's a verse in Hebrews that tells us what's in this most holy place right here. And this is what we'll study in part today. And after the second veil, the second veil's right here. The first veil to the tabernacle is into the holy place, and the second veil's into the most holy place. There was a veil here, but this isn't the tabernacle. This is the courtyard. So after this second veil here, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, and I'll explain that in a little bit, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about the gold, with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over at the cherubim, so the cherubim are there, of glory shadowing the mercy seat. So here we find the cherubim overshadowing the, the mercy seat right here of the Ark of the Covenant. Now it said that the golden censer, which is, this is the altar of incense, but it said it had the golden censer. It didn't say the altar of incense was in the holy place. But that in the holy place you would find the golden censer, which actually did come from the altar of incense, and this is how it happened. On the day of atonement, the high priest, who only alone was able to in his most holy place, would take coals off the altar of incense, and he put them in a censer, and he'd bring the censer into the most holy place. This was one day a year. And so he would bring that censer in there because the incense represents the the prayers of the saints. So God's people are still praying, and that incense is, is mixed with the merits of Jesus Christ. Okay? Because that's the only way our prayers get past the ceiling, is that they're mixed with the merits of Christ because we have none of our own. Okay? And it reaches all the way up to the throne room of God. Now, so um, the reason this says it had it wasn't that this was in it was that this high priest, he'd bring the censer in, which represents the prayers of the saints. And when the high priest was done, he'd bring the censer out with him, and then probation closes. I want to encourage you to find a little book. It's called The Censer Still Burns by, he was the leader in Wildwood, Frizee. Frizee wrote a book, The Censer Still Burns. It's a little book. But that's good news. If I say the censer still burns, that means people still have the opportunity to what? To be saved. 
Because once that censer is brought out of the most holy place, probation is ended. He who is just, let him be just still. Right? Okay? The good news, friends, is the censer is still burning, friends, still burning. Jesus is still in the most holy place. So let's look at the east side now. This is about how the cherubim are on the east side. And thou shalt make a veil, that's the veil, between the holy place, most holy place, or a curtain of blue and purple and scarlet. We won't get into the meaning of the colors now. Fine twined linen of cunning work. With cherubims shall it be made. So cherubim were actually embroidered on this veil. And thou shalt hang the veil under the tax, that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil of the ark of the testimony. And the veil shall divide between you, between the holy place and the most holy place. So here you have a most holy place and the holy place, and the veil is between the two, which puts the veil on which side? The east side. The east side. Okay? Now the things that we'll be looking at in the next couple sermons, that we're going to be talking about, how does the Ark of the Covenant help me understand how to have an at- part of the atonement? How, how does the Ark, or what does it teach me about how to be reconciled with God? How God and I could be in oneness or at one And then we'll probably today talk about the Shekinah, which is the, the, the light that was in between the cherubim. This is God's Shekinah glory. Uh, the cherubim here, which are on either side of the ark. Uh, the mercy seat, which is on top of the ark here. The Ten Commandments, which you see in here, which is inside the ark. The jar of manna, which we believe was inside. And then there's also Aaron's rod. Every one of these things teaches us how to draw closer to God, how we can be at one with God. So let's go ahead and look at some of this. But, and I want to point out about this, the high priest, but in the second veil went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. So think about this earthly sanctuary where the high priest, the earthly high priest, went into the most holy place every year, year after year, would that tell us that those sacrifices could take away sin or couldn't? If he had to do it year after year, it's telling us that they're representing or pointing to something. But the fact that he has to do it year after year means that people are still what? They're still sinning. And these sacrifices themselves weren't designed to take away sin, but pointing to the sacrifice that could, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, okay? And so this earthly high priest would do it every year, so him being in a most holy place was temporary. He'd go in for a day. 365 days later, he'd go in for a day. Okay? But notice Jesus as our high priest. But Christ being come, a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, that'd be the heavenly, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, not of that earthly building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, because that doesn't really cover our sins, but by his own blood he entered in how many? Just once into the holy place, and then, of course, into the most holy place, having attained eternal redemption for us. The good news is that Jesus went into the holy place, and when he left that, he doesn't repeatedly go back and forth. He enters the most holy place because his sacrifice for sin is real. And when he does leave that, It's all over. So the censer still burns. Jesus is still in the most holy place. But for how long? 
Now, none of us know. We don't know their day or hour. Jesus is going to leave the most holy place. But we know that every day that passes by, we're one day closer. We know that we're already delayed the second coming of Christ. We know, according to the spirit of prophecy, Christ would have come over 100 years ago. But we weren't ready. And I think, you know, it's one thing to know about this sanctuary and to know it kind of scholastically. But the reason I want us to go through the sanctuary is that there is a experiential knowledge we have to gain. That everything in this sanctuary means something real about me giving my heart to Jesus and about getting a renewed mind. And this is how we should study the Bible. What does this story teach me about being more like Jesus? What does this story teach me or this sanctuary teach me about being an overcomer? Does that make sense? Okay. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So, that veil that had the cherubim on it, on the east side, represented something. What did it represent? The veil itself. The text says it represented his his flesh. In other ways, the way into the courtyard, which had a veil, the way into the holy place, where we begin to allow God to do things in us, the way into the most holy place, where we're allowing God to do things in us, that puts a finishing touch on our Christian experience, is all made possible by Jesus putting on flesh. What kind of flesh? Our fallen flesh. Jesus didn't put on the flesh of Adam before he sinned. Christ put on the flesh after Adam sinned and took upon himself, as Sister White said, the law of heredity, which is why he was able to be tempted in all points as we are, yet, and he lived this life for us, a life that we could have never lived without him. He's shown us the way. He's our example. He's the way. Now, I want us to focus, maybe we just have time to talk about the cherubim today. So imagine, remember, there's this most holy place, and there's God's presence. Glory, it's a light, a brilliant light. And there's this mercy seat, and under it, the table of Ten Commandments and so forth, and jar of manna. And the cherubim are like this, and their wings actually touched. And as they're looking, they're looking down. Let's read this here. And this is, this is a vision Sister White had of the real one in heaven. Notice this. Two lovely cherubs, one on each side of the ark, stood with their wings outstretched above it and touching each other above the head of who? Above the head of Jesus. Jesus is in the heavenly, most holy place up in heaven. Head of Jesus as he stood before the mercy seat. Their faces were turned toward each other and they looked downward to the ark, representing all the angelic hosts looking with interest at the law of God. 
Between the cherubim was the golden censer, which we talked about. And as the prayers of the saints offered in faith came up to Jesus, and he presented them to his father, a cloud of fragrance arose from the incense, looking like smoke of most beautiful colors. Above the place where Jesus stood before the ark was exceeding bright glory that I could not look upon. It appeared like the throne of God. So this is something in Ellen White saw. This is a view or a, of what the heavenly sanctuary looked like. Jesus actually at this Ark of Covenant with a mercy seat and two live cherubim over the top, looking down, and they take an interest in, what's it say? The law of God. For us to be more closely reconciled to God, I'm going to submit to you that this picture is given to us because we have to have as much interest in the law of God than the angels do. Right? How much interest do unfallen angels have in God's law? They keep looking at it. You know, it's a description, a a transcript of God's character, and they keep looking at it. But what else are they looking at? Before they see the commandments, they see God's Shekinah glory. They see the mercy seat. And I want us to look at this next statement, because it's going to bring the mercy seat into this picture. This is going to be a description of the earthly cherubim and the earthly sanctuary. It says, in the most holy place is his law, the great rule of right by which all mankind are tested. They or the ark that enshrines the tables of the law is covered with the mercy seat before which Christ pleads his blood on the sinner's behalf. Thus is represented the union of justice and mercy and a plan of human redemption. This union, infinite wisdom alone could devise and infinite power accomplish. It is a union that fills all heaven with wonder and adoration. The cherubim of the earthly sanctuary, looking reverently down upon the mercy seat, represent the interest with which the heavenly hosts contemplate the work of redemption. This is the mystery of mercy in which angels desire to look, that God can be just while he justifies the repentant, repenting sinner and renews his intercourse with the fallen race. That Christ could stoop to raise unnumbered multitudes from the abyss of ruin and clothe them with the spotless garments of his own righteousness to unite with angels who have never fallen and to dwell forever in the presence of God. For us, this, pain, this picture is painted for us to have, as it says here, I underline the word reverence, a reverently. Every day, we should reverently look at God's law. Every day we should reverently consider God's mercy upon us. We should reverently think about how only God himself could have come up with a plan when you think about how terrible human history is. Just what's going on today in our world must be horse-stricking the angels. Must look, you know what I'm saying? That... It's like, how do you save? How do these people get up here? But God found a way. It was mercy and still justice. He couldn't do away with his law. 
And yet, without mercy, none of us make it. And what would happen to the universe if he gets rid of his law? It would be chaos. But the angels reverently contemplate how God could take a sinner and turn him into a saint. Part of our being reconciled with God is for us to appreciate the mercy God has given to each one of us individually. The problem with Laodicea is that we think that we're reasonably good. And when we think that way, we don't appreciate the mercy God has shown us. You know, one of the greatest prayers in the New Testament of which Jesus identifies is the man who didn't think he was so righteous, but Lord, forgive me, a sinner. That man, in Jesus' words, stood more righteous than the one who thought he was righteous. And there's something about us in the finishing of this work because we're in the most holy place right now as far as time. Christ is in the last phases of his work. There's only so much time left. And it becomes really important for us every day to appreciate the mercy God has shown us. And the more we appreciate the mercy God has shown us, the more we're going to be willing to overlook the faults of other people and realize that the mercy that God has sh is showing them. All at the same time of not diminishing our belief and our reverence for God's law. You know, if, if you're walking down the street and you saw two Seventh-day Adventist churches, and on one side of the street was, street was the Seventh-day Adventist Church of Mercy, and on the other side of the street was the Seventh-day Adventist Church of Justice. Which church are you going to attend? How many are going to go to the Church of Mercy? Let me see your hands. How many are going to choose the Church of Justice over the Church of Mercy? The problem with our humanity is we're usually one side or the other. If someone does something wrong in the church, you definitely have the mercy people who say, just kind of under the rug. And then you have the justice, the person needs to be disfellowshipped. But Jesus, Ellen White said, was the perfect blend of mercy and justice. He's not balancing mercy and justice. He's the perfect blend where in every situation he's 100% merciful and 100% just. He catches the woman in adultery and he says, where are thy accusers? Mercy. But then he says, go sin no more. Justice. You can see it in politics today, the way people raise their children. We're usually one more one way than the other, and yet it God, as God's people, as we think about what these cherubim are looking at, they're looking at both mercy and, and justice. So in the end of time, we realize we're being tested and judged by the Ten Commandments, God's justice. We realize that we're living in a time of judgment. Judgment's already started. And yet you and I, of all the people on the earth, have to mesh that with mercy. That even though you hold people accountable at the same time, you're trying to reach their hearts. You try to do them good at the same time.
And it takes a reverence of God's mercy to us to be 100% merciful. It takes a reverence on our part towards God's commandments to realize that people do need to be held accountable. But you've got to mesh them together. The other thing that these angels are, and I'll need to close with this for time, is they're looking at the Shekinah glory of God. Now imagine the God, the infinite mind, the infinite God, the monarch of the universe who created the whole universe, which is expanding faster than the speed of light, holds it all together, is now confined to a light to demonstrate God's presence. And when I think about God's humility, God doesn't rule out of pride. God rules out of love. And so as the angels look at this Shekinah glory, knowing that God is infinite, they're reminded that Jesus became a babe. Right? Jesus put on humanity. He clothed his divinity with humanity. And throughout human history, Jesus would appear, and angels go to and fro from heaven to earth. Not because we're small, which we are, but because we're loved. And the only way God could speak to us now is if he appears to us in a shining light or a burning bush or a fire by night or a cloud by day. But We'll see God face to face. And you will see him as he is. We haven't seen him like that other than through the life of Jesus. And we are to intently, reverently contemplate the cost. A God who allow himself to be a burning bush, a babe in a manger for us. And we learned some of these lessons by just studying here the cherubim. Let me see if I got one more slide on the cherubim. And so there's the reverence for God's love, his presence and the shine of glory, his mercy, and reverence for God's law. Now I'll close with this quote. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets 594. So from the anointed ones that stand in God's presence, those are those two cherubim. The fullness of divine light and love and power is imparted to his people that they may impart to others light and joy and refreshing. Those who are thus enriched are to enrich others with the treasure of God's love. So as we think about these two cherubim who reverently look at the commandments and the mercy seat and how God brought all that together to save suffering humanity, sinful humanity, they don't just watch it. They don't just behold it. What do they do with this light? They share it. Isn't that what it says here? They impart it to his people. That we, who study this message, may what? Impart it to others. So I want us to pray this week as you think about this visual that God gives us.
even if it's just a cherubim, or study deeper, look at some of the other things. That God instill in my heart a greater reference for your law. Help me have a greater reference and appreciation of your mercy. Help me, help me to have a greater appreciation of Jesus becoming a man. But Father, make a way for me to impart what I have freely received. Pray that God will bring someone in your life this week that you can share truth with. Whether that's by voice or by literature. Because when you do this, the purpose for doing this is to draw closer to God. This is all part of being reconciled back with God. It's not a matter of just believing there's a God. The sanctuary is teaching us step by step how to take away all the things that separate us from God so that we can be in perfect harmony with him. And not so long from now, friends, we shall see him face to face. Before our closing prayer, our closing hymn is... Number 524. Number 524.